are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Take your Bible this evening, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. And I want us to turn to chapter number 21, chapter number 21 of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number 21. We're going to begin reading in verse number one, and let's read down through verse number five together. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse number one, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things were passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful." Our Heavenly Father, as our hearts are stirred tonight from just being together with the people of God, how the music has refreshed us, how the testimonies have caused us to reflect on that wonderful moment when you came to our place, you spoke to our heart, and you gave us the opportunity to say yes to the invitation to become a child of God. Lord, may we never forget the joy of that moment. May we never forget the blessing of that hour. Now, Lord, as we come to the preaching of your word, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would cause us to pay close attention and allow you to speak to our hearts this evening from your word. We'll give you the thanks and praise for every good thing that's accomplished. For we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our text for this hour comes from the closing chapters of the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. These are the final words that God has for man before he lays aside the pen of divine inspiration. And in this closing book, the book of Revelation, we read of the visions which God gave to the apostle John. John had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he was there, the book opens by John telling us that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Can I say it's good for us to know that we can be in the Spirit no matter where we're at? Being in the Spirit does not depend on our location, it depends on our relationship. 
And can I say, if you know God, no matter where you're at, whether it be at work, whether it be at school, whether it be at home, whether it be driving down the road, you can experience the very real presence of God in your midst. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and God began to unveil to him many wonderful things. In fact, in this book, 35 times, John will use the phrase, I saw. Another seven times, he will say, I beheld. On 42 different occasions in just 22 chapters, John wants to tell us about something that came across the pathway of his vision. He saw visions of God in chapter number one. My, what a wonderful thing. I hope you have a vision of God. I hope that is in your mind and you think about that and focus upon that. And you remember that he is the one who said, I am he that lived and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. He saw visions of grace in chapters two and three as he looked at those seven churches that God had a message for. Boy, we could spend a lot of time concerning those visions of grace. But then in chapter number four, excuse me, all the way through chapter number 20, God unveils to John some visions of government. Now, you and I, when we think of government, usually we think of our own political system. We think of some governmental authority set up, established by man. But can I say we must remind ourselves that God is the one who governs all. He is in control of everything. He has everything under his control. And he tells us how the world, he shows us how uh, as the church is raptured out, how that the world is ruined by man. Can I say this? Anything man puts his hand to, he messes up. And the world is ruined by man. And then he shows us how the world will be ruled by Satan as the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet take their place on the scene of of the world stage and they begin to unfold their efforts at controlling the world. But then he tells us in chapter 19 how the world is rescued by God as Christ himself returns, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and uh, uh, puts down Satan, binds him for a thousand years in the bottomless pit, and he sets up his kingdom and he rules and reigns for a thousand years on earth. Then that time has passed and Satan is loose for a little season. Then the final rebellion takes place and, and God puts that to an end and uh, sinners are judged. We have the great white throne judgment And then we come to chapter number 21 and 22, where finally, when everything's come to an end, John receives some visions of glory. And I'm interested in this vision of glory that John saw. I've never been to heaven, but I've got a reservation I'm planning on going. I've never talked to anybody who's been to heaven but I've talked to a lot of people who have reservations and are planning on going. Can I say this? A a professor told me once in college, he said, when you talk about heaven, 
make it as grand and as glorious, as big, as magnificent, as wonderful as you can because you can't overdo it. He said nobody will step through the gates of that city and look around and say, wow, I'm disappointed. I thought it'd be a lot better than this. He said, don't worry about making it too glorious because you cannot conceive how wonderful is the place that God has prepared for those that love him. And I'm interested because John begins in verse number 21. And John is there and he's going to see some of this thing called glory. And, and he says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So first of all, he gives us a report. He says, I looked and there was a new heaven and a new earth. And then he tells us the reason why there is this new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Do you realize that the first heaven was tainted by sin? And the first earth was tainted by sin. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. I'm just going to wipe it all out. I'm going to remove that old heaven where Satan began his original rebellion. I'm going to remove that old earth where Satan afflicted the lives of so many and sin ran its course. And I'm going to make all things in a new earth. And then here's the thing that amazes me. As John begins to describe the new heaven, Here's his first sentence written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there was no more sea. Now, does that not puzzle you? Can I say if I were writing, I think the first thing I would write about would be a street of gold. Maybe would be walls of jasper. Maybe gates of pearl. Maybe 12 foundations of precious stones. Maybe I would describe the mansions, perhaps the tree of life, maybe the river of the water of life that flows out from the throne of God, maybe the throne itself. But I don't really think that my first observation of this glorious place would be in there is no more sea. As I begin to think about that, I begin to puzzle. Why in the world would the Holy Spirit say, now John, look at this place. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. I want you to write down, there was no more sea. I begin to think about the sea. I begin to think about what it represents. Could I say to you, I think that the sea represents to us absence through separation. We speak of those many times who uh, perhaps, <coughs> excuse me, are serving in the military, maybe stationed on a distant shore, we refer to them as being what? Overseas. In other words, what we're saying is they are separated from us. There is, there is some hindrance. There is some barrier placed between us and them so that we cannot be with them. We cannot fellowship like we would desire to. Sometimes separation takes place because of duty. That's what a military person is. Many of you will celebrate Christmas and you'll gather around the Christmas tree. You'll gather with your family at that special occasion, maybe around the table. 
but there will be someone missing. There is a son, there is a daughter, there is a brother or sister who because of their responsibility, because of their duty in the military, they are not able to be home for Christmas. Sometimes it's not a secular duty, sometimes it's a spiritual duty. There will be people in here this evening who are gathered together and uh, when Christmas comes, there'll be family members who are missing because perhaps they're stationed on a mission field somewhere. Or perhaps they're serving God in another church, in another city, in another state. It'll be that way with my family. We'll gather around the Christmas tree and seems like every year the crowd gets a little smaller. Instead of growing, our crowd is shrinking. This year, my daughter and her husband and the grandchildren won't be there and my son and his wife, they'll not be there. Why? Because spiritual duty, God's place of service has called them somewhere else. And so there's separation because of duty. Can I say sometimes there's separation because of doctrine? Sometimes because people do not agree with what the Bible has to say and, and they, they do not agree with our, our faith and, and how we want to practice our Christianity and sometimes that brings about separation. Not that we become their enemies, not that we seek to attack them and to run them down, but we're just not able to be as close as we'd like to be because how can two walk together? except they be agreed. And can I say this? Sometimes there'll be separation because of death. And this year, as you gather around the Christmas tree, I'm sure that perhaps there will be in many homes a place that is empty. Your heart will be sad and broken because there is separation. But oh, I want to tell you, one of these days, there is coming a day when there will be no more sea. There'll be no more separation because of duty, because our duties will all be finished and we'll all be home. There'll be no more separation because of doctrine, because our doctrine will be right and we'll be united in heaven together. There'll be no more separation because of death, for there will be no more death. God will wipe the tears away from our eyes and we'll be united in heaven fellowshipping with those who have gone before and what a day that will be. Can I say the sea speaks of absence through separation. Not only does the sea represent to us absence through separation, but I would say tonight that the sea recalls for us the adversity of storms. Have you ever thought about this in Jesus' earthly ministry? Many times we read about him uh, being involved in a storm. He's on the ship with the disciples and a storm comes. Another occasion, the disciples are on the ship and Jesus comes walking to them on the water through the midst of the storm. Now, have you ever thought about this? In, in Jesus' earthly sojourn, every storm recorded in his life took place on the sea. Every one. The truth of it is most of the pictures that you and I see of a storm, the representations of a storm, nearly all of them 
have as a part of their element in the picture the sea or the water in some shape or form. You know, storms speak of adversity. And oh, can I say to you that as we make our way through life, there's lots of adversity. Job said in Job 14.1 that man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He said that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. As sure as you poke a fire or stir up the embers and the sparks go upward, that's how certain that there's going to be heartache and trouble and difficulty on the road of life. Our storms come from many different ways. Himself, the devil. That's what happened in the life of Job. Job was a good man. Job loved God. Job hated evil. Job was living right, doing what was right, uh, walking with God. And because of the interference of the wicked one himself, a storm came into Job's life. Turned his entire life upside down. I mean, he was crippled by bankruptcy. He was crushed by bereavement. He was criticized by his best friends. He was cursed by his bride. I mean, everything you could think about happened to Job, came against him, and Job's had to say this. He said, I look for God in all this. Have you ever been there where you look for God in the storm? Job said, I looked on my right hand, I couldn't find him. I looked on my left hand, I couldn't find him there. I looked behind me and God wasn't there to be found. I looked in front of me and I couldn't see him. But Job said this, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He said, I may not be able to see God, but God can see me and I'm gonna trust him to get me through the storm. Sometimes there'll be storms that come into your life. That's what Jesus told Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift thee, to have thee that he may sift thee as wheat. Sometimes our storms come from our foe. Sometimes, tragically, storms come from our family. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 36, a man's foes shall be they of his own household. You know, it, it, it really is distressing sometimes the great chasm that develops within a family bond. And sometimes, because... Uh, of something that's taken wrong, of something that's said, of something that's done, of an attitude that's taken, sometimes there'll be an enemy that will rise up in the midst of the family and seek to devour and destroy. Tragically, sometimes there'll be storms that come from the fellowship itself. The psalmist said in Psalm 133, verse number one, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. But the tragedy is that it doesn't always happen that way. It'd be wonderful if we all would just get along, if we just all love one another. The problem is many times we're made of flesh and we allow that old nature to rise up and we become easily offended and, and we get hurt and and then we take up a, an offense against someone else. Many times our storms come just simply because of our own foolishness. We mismanage our money. We fail to work at our marriage. We abuse our ministry. We somehow seek out conflict with other members. And as a result, a storm arises. 
Know how difficult it is when the storm sweeps through your life. But I've got good news for you. One day there'll be no more sea. One day the storms will all be passed. The foe is going to be banished. The family will be united. Our fellowship will be perfected. Our foolishness will all be a thing of history. And there'll be no storms in heaven for there is no more sea. I began to think about that and I thought, man, that's great. There's no separation. There's no storms. And that's about all I can think of about no more sea. And then I was reading one day and I found a passage of scripture. It's very fascinating over in the book of Micah in the Old Testament. I'm sure that you probably are familiar with this and you can be turning in your Bible to Micah chapter number seven. And I want you to notice a very interesting statement the Lord makes. He's talking about Israel and how Israel is going to be uh, restored and how God is going to use them again and and God is going to bless them again. And he says in Micah chapter 7 and verse number 19, he will turn again, he will have compassion upon us, he will subdue our iniquities, and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You see, the sea not only represents to us absence through separation and recalls to us the adversity of storms, but sin reminds us of the, uh, but the sea reminds us of the abode of our sin. You know, we learn a lot in the Bible about sin. In fact, the reason the world is so ignorant concerning sin is because They don't read the Bible. The Bible tells us about the fact of our sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We're sinners in two fashions. We're sinners by birth. Just happens. A child is ushered into the world and No sooner is that child born than the psalmist says they go astray from the womb speaking lies. You've heard it. Our kids all did it. I don't know who taught them. I think their mother did. No, not not really, but somehow or another, innately, they knew how to lie. I would go lay down in the bed at night and (coughs) be ready to go to sleep, and all of a sudden I'd hear a blood-curdling scream from that child's room. All of a sudden, horrible images would run through my mind. I could see that giant tarantula climbing into the crib, pulling back the cover, ready to devour that new child. Jump up out of the bed, whack my toe on the furniture as I ran past, run into the room, turn on the light, and lean over that bed, and that little baby would look at me and just smile and laugh. You know what? That blood-curdling scream was not a scream of danger. That was a lie to get dad to run and rescue him from his loneliness. You see, we're sinners by birth. You don't have to teach your kids to lie, cheat, and steal. They know how to do that. Why? Because they're born with a sin nature. But the truth of it is there comes a point in time in our life when we know, we understand what is right and what is wrong, and we choose to do wrong deliberately, we're sinners by birth, but we're sinners by choice. 
And the Bible tells us about the facing of our sin. The Bible reminds us in Romans 6, 23 that the wages of sin is death. Tells us in Romans 14, 12, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself unto God. Boy, that's an awful thought, is it not? You begin to recollect and think about how many sins that you have committed. You begin to write it down. You begin to tally it up. And the more you think, the more you realize, and the more you realize, the greater the horror becomes that you would have to give an account to God for your sin. But I'm glad the Bible tells us about the forgiving of our sin. Psalm 86 and verse number five, for thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. Oh, can I say that that word ready carries the idea that God is sitting on the edge of his seat. He is, he is just bouncing with anticipation. He is anxiously awaiting an opportunity to forgive someone. Man, what a wonderful God that is. Thou, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. There's not a person who has, not called, who has called on God to whom God has said, no, I will not forgive you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that is. In our, in our passage, in Micah chapter 7, he said in verse number 18, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Man, what a wonderful God that he is. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He'll subdue our iniquities. Thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. I, I hate to use this word, but I use it because... It fits. I talked about the fact of facing the forgiving of our sin. And I want to say something about the forgetting of our sin. Psalm 103, the psalmist says, uh, has a wonderful passage where he writes. Here's what he says in Psalm 103, verse number 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. I, I, I don't like to use the word forgetting because I think it paints a wrong picture. We, we sing, you know, our, our sins are uh, in the sea of God's forgetfulness. That's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. I think I understand what the songwriter says, but I think technically we're using the wrong word. Can I say tonight, God does not really forget our sin. Forgetting is an act of human frailty. The problem with forgetting is the more you try to forget, the more you have to remember what you're trying to forget. You don't do it on purpose. You didn't walk out of the house last week and say, I must forget my keys. I must forget my keys. I must forget my keys. No, what happened? You just got busy doing other things 
and the frailty of your mind, you walked off and left those keys laying on the counter. However, God does say this, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 12, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Memory is a deliberate act of the mind to recall something, to bring it up once more. Here's what God says. God says, when you come to me with your sin and you ask for my forgiveness, I forgive you, I cast as far as the east is from the west. I'm going to put it into the depths of the sea Never to be remember, never to be recalled again and held against you. Can I say that's real forgiveness? When you forgive your wife or you forgive your husband or you say you do, and the next time a problem arises, you recall it from the past and you hold it up against them again, you really didn't forgive. When your children do something, you say, I forgive you. They apologize. They make it right. You forgive them. And the next time they mess up, you go back and you dredge that old thing up again and you hold it up against them again. You really haven't forgiven them. To forgive means you make a commitment. I may understand that it happened in the past. I may not be able to blot it out of my mind, but I am never going to bring the subject up again. Man, aren't you glad that God doesn't bring the subject up again? He puts our sins in the depths of the sea. Oh, I wish I had time to tell you tonight. You know, that's a wonderful verse, Hebrews chapter 8. He almost reiterates that same verse in Hebrews chapter number 10. He says in Hebrews 10, 17, And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And you know, we come to Hebrews chapter 11. (coughs) that great chapter of the faith. And we find all kind of unusual characters in there. We find Noah who got drunk. We find Abraham who lied. We find uh, 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 Samson who was immoral and committed suicide. We find all kind of characters in there But you know what? God never brings up their sin in that chapter. Why? Because the chapter before, he said, I will remember it no more. I'm not going to bring it up anymore. It's all done. It's all taken care of. It's all finished as far as I am concerned. What a wonderful thing it is to know a forgiving God like that. But can I say to you in Revelation, the Bible tells us in heaven, and there was no more sea. You ever get tired of sinning? Seems sometimes like the harder you try, the worse you do. I, I, I understand exactly what Paul said when he said, that which I would, that do I not, that which I would not, that do I. Oh, wretched man that I am. But I've got good news for you. There's coming a day when there will be no need for a sea. There will be no need for a depository for the sins that God has put beyond recall. For hallelujah, once we enter the gates of that city, we will never sin again. Never one more time 
will he be disappointed in us. Never one more time will we stumble and fall. For we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day. I wonder tonight, are you experiencing some separation? Is there something that's come in your life that's caused you to be divided from someone you love? Maybe duty, maybe doctrine, maybe death. Oh, can I say tonight, let me give you hope. Jesus is coming again. And soon, that great reunion will take place and it'll all be made better. Maybe tonight, to you, you're experiencing a storm. The waves of adversity are rushing over you and you feel like you're gonna go under and not survive. Oh, dear child of God, though you may not see God, God sees you. He's got everything under control. Just trust him. Soon there's coming a day when there will be no more storms. Tonight, have you stumbled and fallen? Have you messed up? I want to tell you tonight, there's a great God who is plenteous in mercy and who is ready to forgive. And if you come and confess that sin and make it right with him, he'll remember it no more. He'll never bring it up again. Now the old accuser of the brethren will remind you about it. The devil will remind you about it. He'll call it up time after time after time. But I don't tell you, you just tell him to go away. You know what his end is. When he reminds you about his past, about your past, remind him about his future. Can I say, God will forgive you. You can get up and start again. But oh, hallelujah, there's coming a day when there'll have to be no more forgiveness, when there'll have to be no more getting right. Or we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. No wonder the Holy Spirit said to John, when you write, tell him first, there's no more sin. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.